Support for Think Humanities is brought to you by the Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing. Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 48 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Don't you just love a good story? Bob Thompson is a member of the Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau, but that's at the end of his resume. Before you get to that line, you'll find he is the self-appointed Colonel Bob Thompson, and in his own words, Kentucky Colonel, engineer, storyteller, writer, event producer, self-appointed Commissioner of Kentucky Front Porches, and resident Front Porch Philosopher on the weekly National Public Radio Show, KentuckyHomefront.org. And he's also written Our Lives, all of them are alluvial landscapes shaped by the streams of energy flowing around and through us, both eroding and replenishing. Bob Thompson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bill. It's good to be here. Let's start right there with our lives. All of them are alluvial landscapes. Tell me, tell me what that sentence means. Well, it goes back to the fact that um, I think I have part of the Ohio River running through my veins. Um, I was born on the banks of the Ohio River in Riverside Hospital, Paducah. And uh, ironically, it was... Uh, on the site of the old Civil War fort that was there from the Battle of Paducah. And my grandfather died at that fort uh, during the Civil War, during the uh, bombardment of that fort. So uh, I have a particular affinity for rivers all over the world. And and it feels like that, you know, my spirit has sort of flown, uh, flowed down the river and out to the sea and all over the world. And, and I think a lot of people have those feelings that, uh, that they're, they're connected with the river and their streams of energies flow. Well, give me your, your life story in, in 60 seconds. No, no, not, not that short. Uh, <laughs> there's too much to, to get into there, but give me sort of the, uh, the reader's digest version of your, of your life story. And then we'll talk about the stories that you tell and some of the other things that I alluded to uh, during the introduction. Sure. I, um, I grew up in Western Kentucky in extreme Western Kentucky down where the Ohio is the Mississippi uh, not far from Monkey's Eyebrow. It was actually, it's well known, a uh, little place called Raglan, Kentucky. And uh, I grew up next door to my, my family's country grocery store. Uh, and uh, I, I was an only child and my best friends growing up were the old men that uh, inhabited the front porch in the summertime and the uh, repurposed uh, church benches around the warm morning stove in the wintertime. And um, I had a, uh, a full complement of grandmothers, two grandmothers and four great-grandmothers, but all of my grandfathers had been, had, were gone. Uh, the last one was taken by the Ohio River um, in, uh, in a flood in 1951 when I was about a year, year and a half old. So all the old guys on the front porch became my surrogate grandfathers. And they had known my grand, uh, all my grandparents, and uh, uh, they gave me an education. They were... They had come back from the, uh, uh, from the factories after the Great Depression. A lot of them went off and worked in the northern uh, factories and had come back. And some of the old farmers had stayed around. And uh, so I got a, uh, 
I was a listener then. They were the storytellers. And I got, uh, I benefited from the fact that things they told me about world wars and depressions and, and uh, river risings and the great flood of 37. I had a, a, a set of world book encyclopedias and I would cross check them and then come back and ask them the questions about it. Um, I think early on, I realized that both sides of my brain work. <clears throat> I was really good at math and later physics. And so for some reason, I wanted to be an engineer. And I got a small physics scholarship and went off to the Murray State University with that and then uh, realized that they didn't offer an engineering degree. And so I, uh, I took off to the University of Kentucky uh, in the spring of 1970, just after the, uh, the riots there, the, the protests there, Kent State and all that. Um, <clears throat> I'd always done a lot of reading and I was particularly influenced by Mark Twain and Ernest Hemingway and and uh, when I graduated from uh, college, my, my grandmother made the longest trip of her life up to Lexington to see me graduate. And uh, uh, it turns out that every month out of the grocery store, she'd taken a $20 bill and put it in an envelope. And it took me five years to get an engineering degree. But at the graduation, she gave me this envelope and I opened it up and had $1,200 in it. And she said, well, you know, son, what are you, what are you going to do with that? fully expecting I was going to do something sensible like uh, buy a car or something like that. And I said, well, Granny, you know, I think I'm going to take this money and hitchhike across Europe for the summer. And, and that was, uh, it was something that didn't compute, but I, you know, I explained to her that it, I'd realized that it was a time in my life when I didn't have any obligations. I didn't have a family. I, I didn't have a job yet. And there would not be another time in my life when I got to do that. So I took off, uh, got a two hundred dollar round uh, trip, round trip ticket on uh, uh, Royal Dutch Airlines, and flew off to Amsterdam and took off hitchhiking for the summer, and wound up. That was in nineteen seventy three, and wound up in. Uh, uh, I got almost to the coast of Turkey, down in Greece, down in the Cyclades. Came back in time to run with the bulls like Hemingway at Pamplona, and uh, came back and. And got a job. My first engineering job was at the University of Kentucky for the physical plant department. Uh, I was in charge of all construction and renovation on campus. And at that time, uh, I started uh, my first project was completing the football stadium. And uh, I got to know Adolph Rupp really well. I got to know that was just he had just been let go that that spring. I got to know Joby Hall, everybody at the university. Um, and uh, I worked for them for about seven or eight years. And in the meantime, went off to, to study with a guy named Buckminster Fuller, who invented geodesic domes, and came back and, and decided to start a company on my own, building solar houses and geodesic domes and things like that. Um, and did that for a while. And then uh, uh, interest the construction market went way down when interest rates went to 18% in the, in the uh, what, mid uh, seven late late seventies and stuff. So then I went to work for a large multinational corporation, Simplex, and it turns out that my storytelling skills were uh, were a great benefit because uh, since both sides of my brain work, I could I could talk to the research and development people and figure out what those fuzzy heads were talking to, and then translate that to upper management, and then also translate that into marketing plans. So uh, uh, my first my first big hit was uh, 
I wound up coordinating all of the electronic systems put in the Toyota plant in Georgetown. Uh, everything. And, and uh, in fact, uh, I had a, I listened to the Japanese and had a friend in Japan. He told me uh, how their culture worked and how their thinking worked. And I wound up uh, increasing my contract there by about uh, sixfold and to the point where the, the company said, well, after it was over, I, I finished and got all the punch lists done and, and pulled off site within a year. <clears throat> and after that, it was like, okay, Bob, why don't you just sort of go around the country or the world and try to figure out things that we don't do that we should be doing that'll make us a lot of money. So for the next 20 years, I traveled the world, basically my own boss working with for a major corporation, just uh, exploring new, new marketing ideas and stuff. And then I retired and started writing books. So that's pretty much it. <laughs> uh, in the meantime, I, got, I did a, the, the radio show and got tied up with John Gage here in Louisville and been doing that for about 20 years. And so how long have you been retired, if you don't uh, mind me asking? Uh, 10 years this year. I retired uh, in uh, 2000. So it sounds like uh, you've uh, packed it in, uh, in the time that uh, you have been uh, traveling and, and living in Kentucky and exploring uh, the world. Uh, and, uh, but something uh, brought you back to the bluegrass, did it not? Well, I never left. Uh, I, you know, uh, when you work for a big corporate corporation, they like for you to move around a lot. Uh, in fact, the company I worked for was a, <clears throat> was a spinoff of IBM. And, and in the old days, uh, that, that stood for I've been moved. <laughs> and and they, would, they were famous about moving people. But every time I would uh, develop a new market for them, uh, they would offer me, we'd start up a new division and they'd offer me uh, the, you know, to run that division. And, I'd say, and that would mean moving to some place, generally up to Massachusetts where headquarters was. And I'd say, nah, you know, uh, I'll get it going. I'll train the people. I'll, uh, I'll put somebody in place. And then I want to, you know, get, keep doing what I'm doing, developing something else. So I really, I never moved from, uh, from Kentucky. Have you ever regretted um, uh, leaving uh, work, uh, the work day and, and doing what you're doing now or for the last 10 years? Um, it was a smooth transition for me because I, uh, in, uh, I've been a professional storyteller since 1986. And so I was doing both things at once. And uh, basically in my, my professional job, I was a, uh, a traveling technical storyteller. Uh, so the same the same skills uh, as a storyteller really worked well in business, and so I, you know I accumulated over two million miles of frequent flyer points. So I was able to take my family to Europe thirteen times, and you know about every other year, and we was, we just had a, a great time exploring the world. Well, you are a uh, professional storyteller with uh, a lot of stories uh, to tell, uh, as well as telling us how to tell a story. And that's what I want to talk with you about next. But we're going to pause now and hear from our friends at Spalding University. Spalding University is affordable, nationally distinguished, low residency MFA in writing, offers excellent instruction in a compassionate, supportive community. Focus on your own area of concentration, explore across genres, and examine the interrelatedness of the arts. During one-on-one -on -one independent study, you'll write prolifically and receive expert feedback from your faculty mentor, developing the discipline to keep writing for life. 
Study fiction, poetry, creative nonfiction, writing for children and young adults, and writing for TV, screen, and stage. Learn more at spalding.edu slash schoolofwriting or email schoolofwriting at spalding.edu. Bob, your two talks uh, for the Kentucky Humanities, and I'm sure uh, with your skill uh, and talent, you could do uh, more than just those two. But one is entitled Preserving Personal History, the other Storytelling and Business, which you've just kind of explained as the right brain, left brain. But let's let's start, first of all, with, uh, with storytelling. You, you say you've been a, a storyteller, a professional storyteller since 1986. What does that exactly mean, seriously? What, what is a professional storyteller? And not just that you're paid for your job uh, as a storyteller, but what, what does uh, it take to be a professional storyteller? It takes a lot of travel. <laughs> um, I guess in 1986, I, uh, uh, we'd moved to Louisville. Uh, I had been living down in Henderson, uh, Kentucky, uh, taking care of the Evansville office, but uh, we moved back here uh, whenever I uh, uh, started supervising the, the Toyota project. And my wife uh, wanted to be a, a high school English teacher. And so she went back to college. Uh, and at the time, uh, Justin Community College uh, changed names several times, but uh, she eventually uh, got a degree at the University of Louisville. But two of her professors at the time, uh, Lee Pennington and Joy Pennington, uh, ran the Corn Island Storytelling Festival to, I guess, uh, have the farm team or develop new storytellers. They, uh, they had uh, uh, storytelling classes at a local mall here in Louisville. <clears throat> and she came in one day and said, Bob, you know, my, my professor, Lee Pennington, is uh, uh, having a class on storytelling. I think you might really enjoy it. And so I walked in the first, first class. And I, actually, I walked in on the second class. And the, uh, the first class, the assignment has been uh, get ready to tell a story. And um, uh, I thought I would be exempt because I didn't know about it, but they had other plans. And so I think the the exercise was you reached, they had two bags and you reached in one bag and and, uh, uh, got a a slip out and read it and then reached in the other bag and you had to make a story out of those two things. And I think I got a sack of potatoes and a bouquet of roses. (laughs) <laughs> and I had to make a story, a story on the spot, <laughs> and I did. I uh, told a story, and and uh, uh, in that class was Roberta Brown. Uh, also, she, now Roberta has written about thirteen books to this point, mostly in the ghost genre, and she's the one that uh, that over the years, you know, said, "Bob, you just got so many stories. Uh, uh, you need to start writing books." When um, back to I uh, started storytelling, and, and then I started being involved with the Corn Island Festival. And uh, because of my technical side of my brain, they made me immediately the technical director of the festival. So I was there for about eight or ten years, and all the time I was still telling stories. And at, at one point, Lee said, yeah, you're, you're ready. And so he put me on stage, and then at that point I started getting storytelling jobs across the country, um, Mississippi and out in California. And so I, tra- I travel some, but um, most 
professional storytellers don't tell their own stories. They, they find other stories. And I decided that if I was going to tell stories, it was as much trouble to learn somebody else's stories and get permission. I just write my own. So I started writing my own stories. The Corn Island uh, Story uh, Festival yes. is normally held uh, each fall. That's Tell correct. us a little bit more about it, uh, of this year not having it because of one of those other events that have been canceled because of the coronavirus. So um, is it based on, uh, and I'm, um, you might be disappointed that the only other storytelling festival that I'm aware of is the, uh, is it Jonesville, Tennessee? Jonesboro. Jonesboro, Tennessee. Tennessee, which is yes. Famous. Is, is Corn Island um, uh, close to that one in, in um in, in what goes on there and the number of people that attend? No, not really. It used to be. Uh, what happened was uh, Lee Pennington was one of the founders of, uh, he was he was there for the beginning of the Jonesboro Festival. Uh, and then uh, the next year came back to Lowell and said, well, I think I, I want to start a festival here in Lowell. So he started the Corn Island Storytelling Festival because Corn Island was the original name for Louisville. Um, uh, when George Rogers Clark came down the river uh, to, on his conquest for the forts out west, Fort Kaskaskia and, and those forts, uh, he stopped for the summer um, at, uh, at the fall. There was a, an island just before the falls. You know, I can imagine him paddling down the river and suddenly hearing this great roar. It's like, what's that? And then realizing it was a waterfall and, and um, paddling over to the nearest land. And and they settled there and, and grew a crop of corn um, to provision their expedition to go on out uh, further west so that the people in the military uh, left and went and the, the, the people, the, the civilians stayed on the island. And then eventually uh, they moved over to the south bank of the river and formed Louisville. Um, so we, we had it uh, almost the same format as Jonesboro for a number of years. Uh, and we've had uh, as high as 10,000 people at some of those events back. Uh, we moved it around. Lee liked to move it around a lot. And we were at uh, uh, the water tower and down on the waterfront. And then we were Locust Grove for a year or so. And uh, eventually out at Long Run Park. And several things happened. Uh, the 9-11, uh, we'd never had a rain out before. And then when 9-11 happened, uh, we couldn't get the storytellers that were coming in from across the country couldn't get there. Uh, and then the next year it rained. And so we, we took a, we kept it going for a few years and then took a break for a while and then brought it back at Black Acre, first at the University of Lowell and then at Black Acre. And we sort of had one event one day at Black Acre and another event at U University of Lowell. And uh, to a point, finally, we got to where we just, we just had ghost tales at, um, uh, at Black Acre. And that's what we would, we would talked about expanding it to uh, day programs and stuff, but uh, ironically, ghost stories are the most popular. Why is it important to tell stories? It's our history. You know, it's, it's, um, uh, it's the way people have passed down their history, their culture and uh, throughout, throughout all of time. Um, people write things down. Uh, I am, you know, I'm a writer and, and your literature is great, but there's, there's something missing. There's something about the interpersonal communication, looking something in the, someone in the eye and talking to them. There's a, <clears throat> there's a vibe that you get. You, you understand more about the emotion of the people that you get to, 
there's a lot of, uh, there's more meaning, I think, sometimes between, in the spaces between words than there are the words themselves. And that's something you don't get in, in the written word. And it's, it's something that television, radio, you know, gets close to television. Television probably gets a little closer, but uh, there's nothing like uh, uh, sitting in the room with someone and, and sharing thoughts and sharing stories. And you feel like you really get to know them. You understand the emotional aspect of what they're trying to tell you. The main emphasis or the main point that you want to try to bring home in your talk for Kentucky Humanities uh, that, that you've titled, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Preserving Personal History I think that's a, a, a really unique approach uh, to what your intent is, what you're trying to do. So tell us about why that aspect of, um, of your life and uh, of um, what you're, you're imparting to the audience is, is so important to you. I think that most people feel like uh, their lives matter to them and their family, but, but don't have much of a greater impact to anybody else. It's like, well, I have my experiences. Uh, I'll pass some of those things along to my family and maybe my kids and maybe my grandkids will, will know a little bit about me. But other than that, most people don't take the, don't think that they'll have an impact. They don't think that their experiences are worth anything. They think that, uh, you know, they, they maybe maybe they can make quilts or something that will be passed on. But in in you know, fifty years from now, people will look at family photo albums, and if there's not a notation on the back, the, the names, the pictures won't mean anything. Uh, the experiences that they had, the lessons that they've learned, will 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 be lost to, to most future generations unless they're passed on down in stories, unless that you can somehow convey uh, what you've learned, the experiences you've learned, the mistakes you've made, the, the, the triumphs that you've had, how you felt about life and stuff. And, and those are lessons that would be valuable to your progeny and to, to the population in general. And if, if you don't, uh, make an effort to, to some effort to put them down, then they'll be, they will be lost. Uh, it's not like somebody's going to walk through a graveyard in 50 or 75 years and read your name on a tombstone and think, wow, let me Google him and see, see what he did. And, and, mm-hmm. and you know, that's not going to happen. So uh, uh, I think that it's, it, it's better for all generations. You're primarily, um, and I think this is uh, an excellent piece of advice. You're primarily, uh, writing those stories uh, individually for uh, maybe your children, your grandchildren, uh, uh, as you said, uh, in in your family. But beyond that, it, it can touch people. It can reach yes. many others. Uh, there, are, and, there are universal truths in all of our stories. And I think that's why it's so important. By the way, do you know, um, by chance, uh, a, a young uh, composer, musician in Louisville named Rachel Grimes? I ran across her. We just did a uh, a podcast with her just uh, just aired a couple of weeks ago, and it is uh, uh, I, I did not know until uh, I have met you and, and looked into your background. It, it's about a family story that she's uncovered, and uh, she writes uh, that she discovered this story 
in cleaning out uh, some of her parents' uh, boxes, uh, uh-huh. storage, and in her father's uh, box, she right. found a lot of photographs, and one photograph led to something else, and she's exactly. had, uh, written now uh, a, a, an opera, a folk opera. Wow. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's an amazing story, and, and you're suggesting in many ways uh, of really doing the same thing, maybe uh, either with or without the music, but that's what you're talking about. That's Personal exactly stories right. that, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and my mother was a, a diarist. She kept a diary from 1940, from the day she moved to the country when she was 13 years old until she forgot to start, you know, to write in her diary. So I've had, I've had, you know, 50 years of her diary, daily diaries, and, and looking back through them. If you don't do anything else, to, you know, just write down uh, your thoughts or observations, uh, every day. And when people can dig back through those, and I've got a really good understanding now of who my mother was as a, as a child and, and, you know, before she was married and when she met my dad and things like that. Uh, let me, I have to say that the storytelling sort of runs in my family. Lily Tomlin's my first cousin. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And she and I, yesterday was her 81st birthday and she and oh, I, bless her heart. I texted her last night and we've, we've had a conversation that this lasted into this morning now. And so she's, she's always been very supportive of what I've been doing. Is she from Kentucky? Her mother was from Kentucky and okay. then, and, and she grew up in Detroit, but then uh, Brooks bus line had a, a daily bus service from Paducah to Detroit because there were so yeah. many people that, uh, yeah. that worked in the factories there. And, and every summer uh, when, when she and her brother were out of school, her and her mother would get on the Brooks bus line and come back to Paducah and spend three months living with, uh, with family and staying, you know, she'd stay with us for a while and she'd stay with her mom for a while and, or stay with her grandparents parents for a while and uh, uh, I just got to know her she was she was 11 years older than me but uh, uh, you know we got to know each other quite well and been lifelong friends the second uh, talk uh, and you have uh, touched on that but a little bit more on storytelling in business and uh, I would imagine that's a little bit uh, well there's there's humor in everything and you probably yes. bring humor to to all of your uh, presentations but tell us a little bit about that about how you've you, you think that instructing others in in corporate business today in the way that that you uh lead them uh, to tell a story uh, is important and and is worthwhile and might even uh, impress somebody to buy, buy a product or, or or whatever well absolutely you you know um, um was well, the old adage the mind can only absorb what the what the posterior can stand uh, so so when you start talking to somebody um, it, it, storytelling is storytelling so when you if it's if it's a uh, business storytelling event or uh, I'm on stage the very first thing you have to do is is grab their attention uh, and you can do that with humor a lot of times uh, you know, you tell it. That's the reason people tell jokes at the beginning of, of every a presentation, because you tell a joke, you get people laughing. And, and now you've probably got a minute or two minutes then uh, to interject, you know, what you, you want to say uh, before you start losing their attention. And then you have to do something else. I mean, Mark Twain used to come on stage and stand there and not say anything for 30 seconds or a whole minute. And everybody, you know, was talking when he walked on stage. Then they gradually just stop and, and stare at him. And that, the reason he did that was he wanted 
all of their attention to begin with. And, and as, a, as a technical storyteller, you have to understand that once you get their attention, you're only going to have it for a few minutes because you're going to start introducing the technical stuff and then you'll lose them. It, and you have to do something maybe two or three minutes into the, the story to bring them back. So the whole process of technical storytelling is getting their attention, then telling them what you really want to tell them, and then pulling them back in just before you lose interest. Because in most of those presentations, it's uh, oral presentations are not like reading. If you if you read something in a book and your mind drifts, you can always go back to the sentence or the paragraph above it and go back and, and pick up where you left off and reread it. In an in oral presentation, you can't afford to let the audience do that because uh, uh, they can't replay what you just said. So you really need to keep their attention the entire time. And there's ways of doing that as a storyteller and as a, as a business presenter that, that if you know those things, you can keep from losing their attention. People's attention span these days is about the length of a, uh, a pop song. It's about three and a half to four minutes, and then they want to move on to something else. So you really have to, knowing that helps you, helps you uh, uh, tailor your presentation to to uh, to make sure you never you don't lose their interest. In this uh, digital age, um, zooming all the time. Um, <laughs> Not really being in touch with uh, folks, uh, at least uh, during this period of time, and hopefully uh, that's going to end soon, but it's still going to be months away. How important is the front porch? And and how, uh, when you describe yourself as a front porch philosopher, do you think we can retain that even when we come uh, to the other side of uh, the coronavirus? I hope we can. Um you know, the virtual front porches, I guess, are the thing now. Uh, and you can reach a whole lot more people uh, talking to you. I feel like that you and I understand each other a little more because we're watching each other's facial expressions and, and seeing their, you know, sort of looking into each other's eyes. And, and, and um, that's that's good. Um, it's not as good as, as sitting on the front porch and having long pauses, uh, I think this this sort of virtual uh, storytelling or virtual interaction doesn't allow for those pauses for for both of you to stare off into, you know, over the horizon or through the trees or watch a, a fawn come into the yard or, or a car go by and have those sorts of conversations. So, so you don't have those pauses that allow for reflection and and for you to gather your thoughts and then come back with something. So that that's missing in the front porch in the real front porch. Uh, but but still, you know, you can reach a wider audience with a virtual front porch. So, Bob, what's um, in the future for you with um, for the next few months, at least, uh, if not, uh, let, let's say the next six months, uh, we're all waiting for uh, the vaccine or something to change. And, and uh, God willing, and let's do hope uh, that uh, things are going to improve and get a lot better. Uh, this this country uh, right now seems to be. Uh, in turmoil uh, on so many fronts, what 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 do you see the future of um, of storytelling and of the things that you've been involved in for the last few years? I'm not sure how they'll all come back. Um, 
for me personally, uh, it's it's almost uh, fortuitous because I'm I'm looking at a deadline of the end of the year for for the manuscript for my next book. So um, uh, with the University Press of Kentucky, so uh, it's it's sort of helped me. You know, I don't have uh, as many distractions as I was normally have, but uh, and and things are starting to pick up. I've got a book signing and speaking engagement uh, at Spindletop uh, over in Lexington uh, coming up in a week and a half or so. So those things are starting to pick up a little bit, you know, and uh, you have to be careful because uh, I ask about, you know, the questions that you ask are what's the distance between the podium and, and the, uh, the audience and will the audience be wearing masks? You know, and I, I want to request that at least if the distance is great enough, I want to, I want them to wear a mask if they approach me afterwards for, for to sign a book or sure. to personally ask me questions and things like that. Um, I don't know how soon we'll be able to get over this. Uh, it's, it's, fundamentally change the way that we approach things. Uh, yes, we, we are divided. Maybe after, I don't know, hopefully after uh, the elections and, and all the partisanship dies down a little bit, we'll, and maybe uh, the coronavirus hopefully uh, abates somewhat, we'll, we'll be able to get back to interpersonal communications. Uh, uh, but I'm, I don't know. We may have to live with this, with this for a while. Well, I'm going to trust that um, uh, storytelling and storytellers will always uh, be with us, uh, that people will, uh, as I've read uh, many times during uh, the last six months, uh, people have returned to uh, some uh, old-fashioned ways, if you will, um, uh, to communicate, uh, to write their stories, uh, to uh, write their families, uh, not, uh, you know, Zoom is a has turned into be a, a wonderful vehicle uh, for communication, but uh, still the the written word, the spoken word, is is something that uh, continues to be uh, practiced and maybe even more in vogue today than ever before. So let let's hope we uh, we get back to the to the good old days uh, before too long. <laughs> Bob Thompson is a member of our uh, Speakers Bureau for Kentucky Humanities. He's available. Uh, to talk with uh, you and your company, your church, your organization at any time. Instructions uh, on uh, Bob and uh, a number of other just great presenters, uh, scholars and historians, other storytellers, um, uh, actors, theater uh, folks uh, are available on our kyhumanities.org website. Um, Contact Bob and invite him uh, via Zoom. Uh, or you just said you were doing it in person uh, soon. Yes, so I am. we'll uh, we'll uh, hopefully uh, you'll hear from some people listening to this podcast. And thanks very much for being with us today. Thank you, Bill. It's, it's been enjoyable for me. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for forty-eight years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.